Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Turn with me in your Bible this morning to the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 10, the very last part. Of this verse, Luke chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 38 and read down through verse 42. Now, I talked about this passage a few weeks ago. I don't remember how long it's been. I went back to, to look in my notes, and apparently, when I preached on it, it wasn't in my notes because I can't find it in any recent notes, so it must not have been in the notes the day I ministered on it. but uh, I want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about this. There's still a little bit stuck in me that the Holy Spirit wants to bring out about this, and so we're going to get into it today. Amen. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. Now, this was a very close family to the Lord. He, uh, uh, he spent time in their home. This was Mary and Martha. Remember, they had a brother named Lazarus. And uh, very often, Jesus would spend time in their home. This uh, was also the same Mary that a little later after this, she uh, had washed the Lord's feet, you remember, with her hair and had anointed him with uh, uh, precious ointments and oils and different things, perfumes. This was the same Mary. And so these two sisters and their brother lived together. And it says that Martha had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him, the Lord, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. I want you to notice that, Mar- that Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, not only is serving not a bad thing, serving is a good thing. And in this context, the service of hospitality is encouraged in the Bible. And so it's a good thing to serve. It's a good thing to serve one another. It's a good thing to be, it's a biblical thing. It's a biblical idea and a biblical virtue to uh, be hospitable and to be a good host when someone's in your home and to, and to serve for them. You remember another, uh, at another time, uh, another woman came and she was a sinner woman. And she came into the place where Jesus was and she went up behind him and 
knelt down and began to, to, with her tears, she began to wash his feet with her tears and to wipe his feet. And the, uh, the religious people who were present, they were highly offended because this was a, was a, a noted sinner woman. And uh, they, you know, they were offended by it. And Jesus said to, to the host there, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, since I've come into your house, you haven't anointed my feet. You haven't anointed my head. You haven't offered me anything. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to minister to me. And so it's good to be a good host and to provide. That was part of the culture of of uh, that part of the world at that time. When someone came in, you, 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 you washed their feet and you provided for them and gave them refreshments and, and you treated every guest as though they were a king in your house. So that's a good thing. It's not a good thing to be distracted in serving. It says here, Martha was distracted with much serving. Serving is good and much serving is good. Could be better. But not to the point of distraction. You know, you can become so concerned with the mechanics of ministry that you miss ministry altogether. It's not good to be distracted from what's really important when you're trying to do what's important and let the serving get in the way. It's not good. She was distracted. We're going to come back to this word distracted in a little bit. But she was distracted with much serving. To the point that she was annoyed with her sister. You know when you're serving the Lord. And you start getting attitudes about other people who aren't serving as much as you are. How many of you believe you've probably missed the boat? The Lord uh, is not so uh, uh, impressed with your service when you're taking your service as a grievance against your brother or sister. Amen. And so that's what she did. She came to him and she said, Lord, do you not care? See, now she's got an attitude against the Lord. You know, when you have an attitude toward your brother and sister, it's a pretty small step to having an attitude with the Lord. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. I won't even go there. But <laughs> I can stop and meddle right there for a little while, but I'm not going to. Lord, do you not care? Pitiful. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, Now, he said her name twice because he wanted to get her attention. You know, sometimes the Lord has to get our attention. And he said, you are worried and troubled about many things. Well, what was she worried and troubled about? She was worried and troubled about her serving and about Mary's lack of participation in her serving. And she was distracted to the point that she had become worried and troubled about it. And when you're worried and you're troubled, you're not in faith. 
you're not in peace, you're not trusting God. Even if you're doing good, your good is outweighed with the distractions and the worry and the, and the anxiety. Well, praise the Lord. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. He said, Mary has chosen. One thing is needed and Mary has chosen that one thing. One thing is needed. Now it's not that other things aren't needed, but when they get out of their place, they they cease to be a blessing to the Lord. He said, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that one good thing. And what was it? It said that she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. It is so important that we spend time with Jesus above everything else. It's so important. It is that one thing. It is that one thing. That has to be ahead of every other thing in our life. And it can't be a just, it can't just be a, uh, a habit. It can't just be a ritual. It can't just be a form. It can't just be something we do by rote. For, for, for the Lord to take pleasure in us. In this, in this uh, context, it has to be something that our heart is in. Amen. And see, she chose this. Mary cho- that means that she, she recognized there was a choice. A choice had been presented to her. Even though her sister was probably already having an attitude. They were sisters, by the way. Sometimes sisters have been known to cop an attitude with one another. And sometimes it, it happens to kind of go, be ongoing. Usually there's a history of that. And the same thing happens in, in the household where brothers live. Amen. This was, this was something, this was a choice presented to Martha. And, and, and she had the option of choosing to satisfy Martha and to appease Martha's frustration and to please her or to please the Lord. And sometimes in life, uh, that choice is presented to us in a lot of different ways. A lot of people will hold, try to hold us to certain requirements. And a lot of times these, these things are, are in and of themselves are not bad, but they become wrong when we choose those things over the Lord and spending time with him. No, Martha... Martha no doubt no doubt felt the pressure felt the 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 pressure to to not 
be at Jesus' feet and to hear his word. She no doubt, she no doubt felt the pressure to also get troubled, become troubled and anxious and distracted. I'm going to tell you, church, there are a lot of distractions in this life. They're on every hand, and I would say now more than ever. Christians worldwide, of course, just like the rest of the world, our minds almost never rest. We always have a device in our hands. We're always scouring the entire known depository of knowledge of every kind of imaginable thing that can come into our mind. We have to search it out. Most of it is not even important, but we're just so curious. And somebody posted something and said something about it. And so let's see what the truth is. We are so busy. We are so distracted, not just with technology, but with the events of the world, things going on around us. We're living in a very distracting time. Unless you make a choice, a conscious, purposeful choice to not be distracted and worried and anxious by these other things, you'll, you'll not, you'll, you'll not uh, avoid it. You'll fall prey to it. I'm, I Listen, I'm talking to me as much as I'm talking to you. These distractions are everywhere. But let's, let's learn from, from Mary. Said she chose that good part, that one thing. She chose it. And Jesus said, nobody is going to take it away from her. It will not be taken from her, Jesus said. Unless you make a choice, unless you make, listen, this was, this was a, you think, you think Martha went to Jesus first? I'll assure you she went to Mary first. Probably repeatedly. She had probably been griping all morning. Unless you make a definite choice, a decision to not be distracted, and you haven't made a choice really until you have stood up to the distraction. Until you have stood your ground and said, I am not going to be distracted by other things. I'm just not going to do it. Until you've done that, you're just, you're, you're, you're a distraction waiting to happen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But if you'll make the choice that Mary made, it'll not be taken away. Nothing will be able to get you away from God's presence. Well, praise the Lord. That was my first uh, foundational text. Go with me now to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. And let's look at verse 17. 
Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, let's all say the next two words together. One thing, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at, that, at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, one thing you lack. This one thing kept him out of the, of the blessing of God. Notice he wasn't even asking. He wasn't asking how he could be made rich. He was already rich. He wasn't asking how he could be healed. He wasn't asking for any natural thing in this life, any natural blessing. He was asking for a spiritual blessing. He said, how can I inherit eternal life? He he recognized that even though he had kept the law, even though since since his youth he had been very diligent to keep the commandments, he recognized that there was something missing in his heart. He recognized just like Job did that, that he was lost and away from God. Job said, if I if I uh if I wash myself with, with water and cleanse myself with soap, he said, I still know that I'm unholy in your sight. And that's what was on this young man's mind. He said, Lord, what can I do to, to inherit eternal life so I can, I can have eternal life, have the life of God? He was saying, he was essentially saying, what can I do to be saved? Jesus said, One thing you lack. Now, this one thing that he lacked had to do with his possessions because his possessions had him more than he had them. Jesus said, you just lack one thing. Notice Jesus, it's interesting. Let me look at this again. He looked at him in verse 21. says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Did you notice that? He loved him. But notice Jesus didn't say, because I love you, you're okay. There are a lot of people today who preach a message. Now, you, I warn you about this often. And the reason I do is because it's, it's a pervasive influence in the church there are a lot of people that are teaching today God loves you 
And because he loves you, you're okay. Everything is good because God loves you. I have personal friends, dear friends. I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about people who, uh, that my wife and I have been close to some 35 years and longer in ministry whom we've been in their homes and they've stayed in our homes and we, people that we love, not just one. Not just two people like this. We have, I know several ministers who preach a message today and it's all one-sided. God loves you and you're accepted. God loves you and you're accepted. Well, that's a valid message, but it's not the whole message. People, Christians who've come from a background of condemnation and have come to Christ, their sins have been washed away, but they still live under a cloud of condemnation and self-loathing and judging themselves constantly over and over and over about their past life. They need to understand, and this is what I was talking about last Sunday, the blood completely washes away sin. We have absolute remission of our sin through the blood of Jesus. And that is so important. But there's another side to truth. And the other side is that sometimes there are still things in the way of our full blessing. Jesus didn't say, it doesn't say that Jesus loved him and said, go your way, depart in peace. That's not what he said. Even though he loved him, He had to be honest with the man and tell him the truth. But there's something that's lacking in your life. We need to be aware of the one thing. If there's one thing, we need to know it. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time commenting on this, but I will read it. Go over there to Hebrews 12 real quick because I have other things I want to talk about. Hebrews 12. Verse 5 says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be rebuked when you are, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? What is today? Father's Day. Well, it's wonderful to honor our fathers. You know, my father was taken from me when I was 11 years old. I never really, I mean, just as a child, you know, you're, you're limited in your understanding. I, I was robbed my whole life from being able to really honor my father. And it's important that we honor our fathers. But it's most important that we honor our Father in heaven. And the greatest thing, the greatest way to respond to your Father is to respond to His correction. Because a son who values his sonship and honors his Father will receive correction. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. That's the only, all I'm going to say about that. 
It just makes the point I'm, I'm talking about today. This is Father's Day. We need to honor the Lord. We need to be able to receive correction today. What better way to honor our Father in heaven than to make the correction when he speaks correction into our lives? That's the best way to honor our Father on Father's Day. Now, I want to tell you about something that I've told you about before. I've told this story many times about something that happened to me in 1974. On August the 8th, 1974... Uh, President Richard Nixon went before the whole nation on television and he announced to the entire nation that the following day at noon he would resign from the presidency, the whole Watergate scandal. And he, uh, the next day he did that. The next morning he got up and he uh, spoke before his staff, he called them all in. Before he did that, he signed a document that someone brought to him. And it's just a simple one-sentence uh, uh, piece of paper. It just said, I, Richard Nixon, do hereby resign from the office of president dated August the 9th. So that day, August the 9th, uh, sometime around 11 o'clock in the morning, he resigned. And then he met with his staff. And then afterwards, he, he and his wife went out on the, on the White House lawn and got into uh, Air Force or Marine One, I guess, a helicopter, turned around, waved. And uh, you've heard the story. That day I was working. I worked for a telephone company at that time, and I installed uh, switchgear uh, telephone systems in businesses. And uh, one of the types of businesses that we put telephone systems in were department stores. And Jacksonville at that time... I remember three department stores. It was J.C. Penney, Sears, and Montgomery Wards. Do you remember any others during those days? Those were the three departments. They would be the same today as Penney's and, and uh, uh, Macy's and Belk's and Dillard's. And they were department stores. They were actually, those stores then were bigger than department stores are now because they carried more. And they usually had two stories, you know, two floors. And uh, this particular store, I don't remember which one it was. I don't remember if it was a Pitties or Awards or where it was that I was working. But it was in a department store. And on the second floor, back over on one side of the second floor, they had the customer uh, service area and the layaway section and where you did returns and all that sort of thing. Went and paid your bill and all that, that kind of stuff. It was customer service desk. And he went in behind this customer service desk, and behind it was another room, and that was where the telephone equipment was lo- lo- located, located. And I was, and that's where I was working. I was working by myself that day, and so I'd been in there that morning working. And I don't remember if it was at lunch or in the uh, my lunch break because I had three breaks a day: one in the morning, uh, one in the afternoon, one at lunch, you know, and then one in the mid afternoon. And uh, I don't remember if it was the lunch break or the, after, or the two o'clock break, but I came out. And uh, back then, you didn't go to big box stores like we have today. They were not electronic stores because there were no electronics. All the TVs, I think, were still those tube-type TVs, you know. And, and uh, so if you wanted to buy a television, you went to a department store like Sears or Penny's or, or, 
or uh, boards, and it was usually up on the second floor. Those of you who are old enough to remember, you remember this. Back on the, up on the second floor, back behind the, the bedding, the mattresses, and, and that sort of thing, back in the corner, they would have a section where they had all the televisions on display. And there would be like 10 or 15 or 20 different television sets, small ones up to larger ones, and the larger ones were small. And uh, they had console televisions, you know, with cap cabinets and all of that. And you would go in there and you'd pick out your television. They'd have them all on. They'd have like 15 televisions. They'd all be on the same channel. That way you could compare one to another. And I remember it during this break, I went out and uh, went over to the area where they were watching. Tele- and there was a, a small crowd of people, maybe 15 people standing there watching this telecast, and it was President uh, Nixon, who was no longer president, he had just resigned, and the, and the helicopter was there, and the cameras were on it, and I don't know if this was live or if it had been recorded, you know, an hour earlier, I'm not sure, but uh, if so, they were replaying it. So President uh, Nixon comes out, gets on the helicopter, and turns around and waves, and everybody standing, it was a very somber atmosphere. Because the president had just resigned. It was a huge scandal. And, and everybody was, was generally in America was sad. Now there were protesters out there who were marching. And they weren't sad. You know they were having a great time. But most people were saddened. Well you see I had been. Before I'd gotten back into fellowship with the Lord. Two years earlier. This was 1974. Two years earlier I'd got back into fellowship with the Lord. And I had been a, a, a hippie. I had been a protester. I, I protested the war. I was, in, I was involved in civil rights protest. I, I, was, in, I was a protest-minded person, an angry person. And Richard Nixon was a villain in my estimation. I mean, he was just lower than a snake's belly. And I hadn't gotten rid of a lot of that, even though I'd gotten back in fellowship with the Lord. The Lord was still working on me. And I remember I, I, I didn't know anybody. So I'm standing around this small group of people and I don't know anybody so I'm not talking to anybody. And people are mumbling, oh, this is so sad. And in my mind, I'm thinking, finally, this no good so-and-so, I mean, I wasn't cussing, but I, this, you know, this terrible person, he has received his just desserts. Finally, he's getting what is coming to him. And I was very uh, pleased, you know, that in, in, in his humiliation. And while I'm standing there thinking these thoughts, and President Nixon was getting on the airplane, waved, right as I'm staying there, standing there thinking these thoughts, the Lord said to me, the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus spoke to me by the Spirit, and he said, yeah, and it's your fault. Just like that. He said, it's your fault, you and the rest of the Christians, because you never prayed for him. Now, when he said that, I mean, it was like a dagger went through my heart. I wasn't talking to anybody, but my eyes just filled with tears. I can, I I mean, it's vivid to me right now. The Spirit of God, Jesus, by the Spirit, spoke to me so powerfully. There was, there was no attempt to argue and say but. or I, 
Jesus had spoken to me and I saw it. I thought, it is my fault. Now, one thing I, I, I turned around and walked back to that equipment room, back around behind customer service in that equipment room. And there, and there was a, some boxes there that had some supplies and stuff in it. And I sat down one of those boxes and I just wept. And I, I, I thank God that I was by myself. And I just wept and repented. Oh God, how could I be so mean-hearted? How could I miss it? And, and the scripture came to me. First of all, prayer, supplication, intercession, giving of thanks, be made for all men, for kings, for all authority. And, and I said, all, and I thought, oh, you're right, Jesus, all I've ever done relative to Richard Nixon is just criticize him. And it was a very powerful uh, experience. And I told one or two people about it. Just, just one or two, not very many people. But I remember when the Lord said it, I remember thinking you know, later that day and the next few days, I went over what, what he said. And I remember being struck by the way he said, yeah, and it's your fault and the rest of the Christians. The way he said the Christians was very dismissive. Now, I didn't believe then, and I'm not suggesting now, that the Lord was dismissing Christians. But it was interesting the way he said, he didn't say the body, he said, he didn't say, yeah, it's your fault and the rest of my body, the body of Christ, or anything nice. He said it in an insulting, I mean, it it reeked with insulting, just this like I said, sort of this dismissive, almost a disgusting tone. And I, I struggled with that. Now, I'm not suggesting I didn't believe them because I know better. He loves us. He loves the church. We are his body. And yet there was such disappointment in his voice with the church. And, 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 and just the way he said it, just it rang in my ears. It's your fault and the rest of the Christians. And I, I, you know, I didn't really tell anybody about that part of it. I just told a couple of friends what the Lord said to me. You know, it was my fault. And then in 1980, that was in 1974, 1980, 1979 and 1980, um, Angel and I and, and our sons, we were in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I was attending Rainbow Bible Training Center. And um, in February of 1980, Brother Hagen, Dad Hagen, held a prayer seminar on the campus of Ramah. And uh, he taught on the art of prayer. It was mostly focused on the importance of intercession. Uh, he taught some foundational things, but he spent a lot of time, time talking about intercession, intercession. And the book, The Art of Prayer, was originally titled in 1980 when it came out. In the fall of 1980, it was entitled The Art of Intercession. And then later they changed the name to The Art of Prayer in a, in a later edition. And uh, in, in this book, he told something that he told during the, the seminar in February that absolutely astounded me. And he talked about something that had happened the summer before, which would have been 1979. This was after the, the, the final service of camp meeting that summer, July of 79, he said some of the speakers and others went up to uh, Pastor Hagen's room, his son's room, 
and uh, for sandwiches and stuff, the last meeting, you know, at, at late, late in the evening. They were talking about things of God. I won't read this verbatim, but he said uh, he, the Spirit of God kept moving on him. And so uh, to the others in the room, he said, uh, I have to pray. I have to pray now. I want you to join me in prayer. He said, the Holy Ghost keeps moving on me. So he began to pray. And uh, it says he ministered to each one of those ministers that were there and each one of those people in the room by the Spirit. And then he said he was caught up in the spirit of prayer. He said he, he, wasn't, he wasn't unconscious of his natural uh, surroundings. He wasn't unconscious that he was in the room, but he was more conscious of spiritual things than he was natural. He just called it being caught up in the spirit. Not to the point of being in a trance or anything, but he was just caught up in the spirit. And it turns out this happened a little after midnight when they started praying. And and they prayed this way until 4 o'clock in the morning. He said it felt like about 10 or 15 minutes. And while he was praying, the Lord spoke to him about some things. Talked to him about his ministry and about some things about uh, the training center and all. Then he said, and I'm going to read this. He said, I saw something. He saw this in the spirit. I saw three things coming up out of the Atlantic Ocean. They looked like three giant black frogs as large as whales. One was in midair. The other two had just stuck their heads up out of the water from the east. Then Brother Hagen made this statement. He said, I had seen something similar nine years before. Uh, He said, Jesus said to him, you saw the same thing in 1970. I told you then exactly what they were, but you didn't do what you should have done about it. I told you back in 1970 to pray for the leaders of this nation. And then I heard Brother Hagen tell this story in February of 1980. This happened in in the, the summer before. He said, I told you back in 1970 to pray for the leaders of this nation. What happened, Watergate and so forth, isn't all the fault of the man who was then president. I'm going to hold the Christians of this nation responsible. You, and the, you are the ones who allowed what happened to your nation. If you had prayed, it would never have happened. I showed you what was, hap- what was about to happen. Go back and check. So in parentheses, Brother Hagin says, later he went back and checked what the Lord had said in 1970 from tapes and manuscripts of a, of a special meeting that was held in October 1970. So now back in in 1979, Jesus said to him, back in 1970, you saw three similar dark objects come up out of the Atlantic and leapfrog all the way across the land. If you and the Christians said the same thing he said to me, he said, if you and the Christians had done what you should have done, none of these things would have happened to your nation. You would not have had the riots you would, have not, you would not have had the political disturbances. Your president would not have made the mistakes he made. In fact, I'm holding the church responsible for his mistakes. Now, the Lord didn't say to me in 1974 anything about the riots or political disturbance or anything like this. The only thing he spoke to me about was what happened to the president. And he said, it's your fault and the rest of the Christians. And the Lord used the same language. When, when Brother Hagen told this story in February of 1980, I, I, was start, I thought, that's exactly what happened to me in 1974. Brother Hagen said he began to weep and cry. So did I. Just like I had in 1974. He, he said, I began to weep and cry. Oh, God. 
Yes, he said, I'm holding you and the church responsible. Then Jesus said, when you tell that to some of the Christians, I can just hear him say it, they will laugh. But when they stand before my judgment seat and they receive the condemnation rather than the man who was then president, they won't laugh. If Christians had done what I told them to do in the Bible, if they had prayed for the leaders of their nation, they would have kept the evil spirits from operating. Then he went on to say, now this is 1970 things, similar things, not the same things, but similar things are about to happen again. If you do not pray, they will happen. And so forth. I won't go into the rest of that. But Brother Hagin had this experience and, and it was almost exactly like mine. The only difference was it was, it was more expanded. It, it covered some other things. And the point was, Jesus said, I'm holding the church responsible for what happened. Now, that's, that's just the truth. And he said, now, you can tell some, some of the Christians about this, and they're going to laugh at you. But when they get to heaven, and they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he said, they won't be laughing then. Well, that just goes to, to illustrate the fact that things happen because we let them happen. We know in John 10, 10, very familiar verse, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. But you know, just because he came that we might have life doesn't mean we always are going to have everything that goes along with life. We know God doesn't send sickness and disease and civil unrest and dissension and, 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 uh, uh, and all of the things that are plaguing our nation, God didn't send it. He's not the author of this. All of the, of the uh, disagreement, the dissension, the hatred, the confusion, the coronavirus, the, the, the rioting, the anarchy, he didn't send any of this. But he allowed it to happen. I've talked to you about this. Those of you who come on Monday nights, I've talked to you about a little bit about this, but I didn't have the full grasp of this uh, in my heart then. And so I just talked to you about it uh, you know, for a, a couple of, of weeks, but didn't go into a lot of detail because I, d- I didn't quite understand it all. But... In Ephesians, it says, do not give place to the devil. Other translation says, do not give the devil any opportunity. Another translation says, do not open the door to the devil. That means though Jesus came to give us life and he doesn't sin and God the Father doesn't sin death and destruction and trouble. Doesn't sin, he doesn't send anything that's contrary to the covenant he has with us. He only sends blessing. But the scripture says you, the, the inference is, is we can yield to the devil. We can give, we can give him an opportunity. And that's why the, the apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus, don't do that. Don't give the devil any place. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, what if you don't resist him? He won't flee. So things happen 
that shouldn't happen. They're not the will of God, but God sometimes has to allow them to happen. They're not his will, but sometimes that we as individuals or we as the church, the Christians, can open the door in a big way. And some things happen. Now, I told you a story a couple weeks ago, another story from Dad Hagen's life, and this is something that happened to him uh, way back, you know, in, in uh, the early days of his ministry. He was preaching in a particular church in Texas, and uh, he either jumped off the platform or back onto the platform. I've heard him tell this story, and, uh, and I don't remember if he was down on the floor and it was a low platform and he just went to jump up on it. It was at the end of the service. And before he jumped, he, he did not realize that a woman had brought a tape recorder. Back then, they had these big reel-to-reel tape machines, you know. And she had set it down to the front to record the service. And he didn't notice until after he had jumped. And he was, his trajectory had him landing right on top of that. Well, in midair, he tried to change direction. There's no, uh, there's no aeronautical way you can do that. Unless you have wings. And he, it, it threw him off balance and he, and he fell. And he fell on his elbow and he, and he thought he had broken it first. It was 9.30 at night, you know. He was in a lot of pain. So uh, they took him to the emergency room. And while he was going to the emergency room, Jesus spoke to him. And Brother Hagin said it was so loud, he, he, he asked the people in the car, did you hear that? And nobody heard it. So it had to have been just a spiritual, you know, word that came. But... Jesus spoke to him and he said, you haven't broken your arm. You've just knocked it out of place. And there's a fracture there, but you know, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to turn it to your good and to my glory. He said, don't even worry about it. So Brother Hagen went on to the hospital. And as soon as he got there, the x-ray, the doctor came out and told him exactly what he already knew. It's not broken. It's just knocked out of place and and uh, we can fix it. But it's actually worse than if it was bro- broken because we're going to have to put all of those, we're going to have to put your elbow back in place and it's going to be very painful and reset the tendons and all the things, you know. And uh, he said, you won't be able to stand it, so we're going to have to put you under. And then he said, you're going to have to stay in the hospital a couple of days. So they did that that night. And so the next morning, Brother Hagen is in his, in his room. He's, you know, he was, he was on the road. His wife wasn't with him. So he's sitting up in his room in the afternoon and he said he was feeling kind of lonely you know, he didn't have any visitors. He's just sitting there. And he heard footsteps coming down the hall. And he thought, he just in his mind, he thought a nurse is walking down the hall. Well, these step, footsteps he heard come up down the hall and come into his room. And the door was cracked open a little ways. You know how they'll just leave a hospital room open a little bit. And whoever had come down the hall, they pushed the door open. Well, Brother Hagen wasn't just looking up at the door. He was kind of looking down And he was expecting to see a nurse walk in, but instead it was Jesus. Now he said, this wasn't wasn't a spiritual vision where you have your eyes closed and you see in the spirit. And it wasn't a trance where, you know, he had had trances before where everything, his whole natural environment was gone and he just was seeing this vision. He said, it was just as clear, he called it an open vision. He said, in an open vision, you have your eyes open and you see in the realm of the spirit, but it's just as real as everything else in the room. He said, Jesus walked into my room. He said, I thought it was a nurse, but it was, Jesus was dressed in a white robe. Instead of having nurse's shoes on, he had on some kind of sandals. 
And, and Brother Hagin said, when he walked into his room, he said, the hair on the back of Brother Hagin said, the hair on the back of my neck just stood up. He said, just goosebumps just popped out all over. He said, I was speechless. I couldn't say a word. He said it was as real, just as for instance right now, if, if Pastor Greg wasn't here, if he was in that other room, and suddenly that door opened and walked in, and you'd see him. In other words, Jesus didn't appear, appear smoky. He didn't have kind of a wavy look to him. He didn't, there was no weird music playing. It was just as real as any man walking into the room, but it's Jesus. He said, Jesus, you know how they have a chair in the hospital room and it's kind of beside the bed, but it's not pulled up to the bed because nurses have to get around, you know, the chair was moved back. He said, Jesus reached over and, and grabbed that chair and pulled it up to the bed. He moved a natural physical chair in that room. So Jesus reached over and pulled that chair up beside his bed and sat down to him and said, I told you yesterday that I was going to talk to you some more about this, and here I am. So he talked to him for quite a while. And uh, the thing he talked about, he said, now, what happened to you? He said, I didn't cause that. Sickness, disease, accidents, none of those things come from me, the Lord said. He said, in fact, at this time, Brother Hagin was a younger man, but he said, up to this time, you've lived in divine health for 25 years. Now, later, Brother Hagin said, much later, that that was the only accident he ever had. From the time he got uh, filled with the Holy Ghost and learned about divine healing and how to live in health, he never was sick again, didn't have any accidents, except he, he got a sick couple times when he got out of the will of God, temporarily. But this was the only time he'd ever have an, had an accident. And Jesus said to him, he said, the reason this happened to you is... You got out of my perfect will. He said, you've been over in my permissive will. And the problem was, Brother Hagin was called to be a prophet and then a teacher. But he had reversed the order of his ministry and he had started emphasizing his teaching ministry over his prophetic ministry, largely because of all of the uh, uh, extreme prophets out there that aren't scriptural and were bringing a lot of reproach to the prophetic ministry. And he didn't want to be classified are, are categorized and put in the same category as all of these fraud pastors or, or prophets. So he had kind of put his prophetic ministry on the side. Pastors wanted him to teach because he was a good teacher and he loved to teach. So he put his teaching ministry first. And Jesus said, when you did that, you got out of my perfect will. He said, and when you did that, you opened the door. He said, now, you might ask, if I knew that was going to happen... Why didn't I stop it from happening? You know, falling and breaking and hurting his arm. You might ask, why didn't I stop it? And Jesus said, I could have, but I didn't want to. He said, and if you, and if you, if you understood, you would thank me that I didn't stop it. He said, because if I, had, if I hadn't stopped that, if I, if I had stopped this fall, you would have continued like you were and you would not have made correction and you would not have lived past the age of 55. Because you'd have been out of my will. Well, Rhema wasn't started until, he didn't start Rhema until he was 57. So, put all of that together. What would have been lost? And he said, if you hadn't, if I hadn't allowed that to happen. He said, the devil did it. It was, it was the devil trying to hurt you. But I had to allow it because you were out of my permissive. You were out of my perfect will. You were only in my permissive will. He said, if I hadn't allowed it you would not have lived past the age of 55. Then he said, you've been out of my perfect will for two years. He said, this is the third time 
I've taught, had to talk to you about this. So he had talked to him twice before about getting his ministry back and prioritized. He said, this is the third time I've had to tell you about it. He said, that's why I let this happen. And he said, I'm going to let you wear that cast for a little while too. I'm not going to just heal you right away. He said, they're going to set your arm. He said, it's going to heal faster than normal. And, and you're going to get the cast off sooner than the doctor says you will. But I'm not, you're going to wear that cast for a little while. And then he went on to say, he said, I'm going to restore 99% use of your elbow. He said, I'm going to leave 1% of, of lack of use of your elbow as a constant reminder the rest of your life to not get out of my will. And Brother Hagin said, the doctors told him that he'd never be able to, to, you know, like to touch his shoulder with his elbow. He said, I can do that fine. He said, nobody knows. I never say anything. He said, I just have a little slight problem with my elbow. And he said, it doesn't really bother me, but I, I feel it sometimes. He said, the Lord said, I'm gonna leave that 1% as a reminder to you. I said all that to say this. When we open the door to the devil, God can allow some things to happen. It's not his plan. It's not his will. But if we don't line up with his plan and his will for our lives, we open the door. Well, praise the Lord. Like I said, what's happening in our nation and the world All of the division, virus, riots, anarchy, all of that. God has allowed it. And and, and the Lord Jesus told Brother Hagin something else. He said, I let this happen to get your attention. To get your attention. He said, if I hadn't gotten your attention, he had tried two times to get his attention by talking to him. But that hadn't worked. He said, uh, I had to get your attention. And so I let this happen so I could get you in a situation where I could talk to you. Well, these things have happened in our world and God has allowed it to get our attention. And it's the church's fault. It's the church's fault. It's our fault. I'll give you three, three reasons. Number one, a lack of prayer. I'm talking about serious, earnest supplication and intercession. There's so little prayer in the body of Christ. And particularly in the church that should know how to pray. You know, Jesus said one time, to whom much is given, much is required. And in the, in the portion of the body of Christ that has been given so much revelation, so much understanding of prayer, how to pray, how to pray effectively. There's so little prayer. There's so little prayer. And we've been praying a long time, years and years and years for a move of God. But we haven't really gotten down to business We pray on on a certain night when we come together to pray. And a few of us pray at other times. But there's not been widespread, heartfelt, real, earnest prayer and supplication by very many people. It's a prayer failure. Well, amen. Secondly, 
It's the result of casual, light-hearted Christianity. Casual, light-hearted Christianity. What do I mean by that? Many churches today have more of an entertainment atmosphere than they do a sacred atmosphere. I'm going to say that again. I'm not saying this is everywhere. And I'm not saying this is necessarily us or you. But I'm going to tell you, whoever sitting in this congregation, if, if, if we need correction, we need correction. But there is, in the church world today, there is an entertainment atmosphere. People come to church to be entertained. And there's not a seriousness. And there's a casualness. They don't recognize. There's, there's very little real fear of God. I remember days when... when we were young in the things of the Spirit. And we were just learning in the 1970s. We were just learning how to pray and, and, and our rights and our privileges in Christ. And, and there was a move of God. I remember we come into church with such an, uh, an expectation and such an, a fear of God. I'm not talking about a fear like you fear a, a, a tornado. I'm talking about an awe, a respect of God's holy presence. And that we'd come into church and we were conscious that, that, that we're coming into the presence of God. We, we've come together for, for it was a divine uh, appointment. A divine appointment and, a, and, a, and a, uh, a holy setting. Churches have lost, largely lost that. They come in and they, they, they go to get something to eat and and. and do, and just, there's so much natural fellowship. Now listen to me, church. Fellowship is good. But there is natural fellowship and there is spiritual fellowship. Our fellowship with one another should not only be socially. Too many Christians, too many, come to church And their fellowship is social. They look forward to seeing their friends and they just fellowship socially. It's not around the things of God. Even though they're at the church building, in the church building, they're fellowshipping around everything but God. Like I said, it's a social gathering rather than a holy sacred gathering. There is a a place for social fellowship. We are human beings and by nature we're social creatures. But we we have to go beyond that. There has to be an awareness. We have to be more serious about the things of God. It, It has to have, the things of God has to have a higher priority, be a higher priority in our lives. Too many Christians are just casual. And then, of course, you've heard me talk about this. I've mentioned it already. But this extreme grace teaching has taken hold in much of not just the the denominational world, but in much of what used to be considered the spirit-filled world of the church. Much of uh, many, many, many 
churches pastored by my friends who once had the fire of God, the presence of God, the move of the Spirit, and a holy awe. They've taught their congregations that because God loves you and because of His grace, nothing else really matters. You're okay. Come as you are. No demands are made upon you. In fact, it has led to loose morals. It has led to a lack of commitment to everything associated with God. A lack of commitment to the church. Now, the seeds of this, this this tendency has always been in the church. I remember in the early days, my wife can bear witness this, in the early days of the Word of Faith movement, you know, if you talked uh, about, you know, serving God and about doing right. And if you brought up anything where, where somebody wasn't, they, they weren't really uh, obeying God in, in terms of commitment to the church or commitment to Christ, there was always a, a, an undercurrent. And we used to laugh about it because most people knew better, but you would hear it. Some people say, you're putting me under condemnation now. Ah, the Bible says there's no condemnation of them who are in Christ Jesus. So there was that response, but most people knew that's bogus. That is completely bogus. The Bible says there is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. <laughs> but that, that, that used to be a little pocket has now grown mainstream. And if you talk to, in, in a lot of churches, it is so pronounced that the pastor dare not put any obligation on it. A message like I'm preaching now would be, you know, just not even thought of. You'd lose half your church over it. Well, praise the Lord. God's not happy with this. Lack of consecration, a refusal to accept any commitment, any correction from God or from their pastor. Well, well, it's a time for repentance and consecration. Amen? Because, make no mistake, all of this that's happened, we're to blame. We're to blame. We are to blame. Amen. I want us all to stand up. In 1980, ah, I didn't bring the right edition. They took the prophecy out of this edition. I should have brought the Art of Intercession, my original book. The back of that original book, the Art of Intercession, there was a, a prophetic utterance that Brother Hagen spoke during that that uh, seminar in 1980. But he talked about the plan and the, and the move of God that was just hovering. Well, it's the same move that we're expecting and praying about now. And think about that was 1980. But he said it can't happen until the church gives birth to it. And it it, it hasn't happened because we haven't we haven't prayed like we should. We pray for a day or two, a service or two. He's wanting us to get serious about these things. Listen, this is a warm and 
fuzzy Father's Day message. Earlier this week, I was really intending to talk about my father, my earthly father, my three spiritual fathers. My earthly father, my pastor when I was growing up, and, and Brother Hagen. Those were the three spiritual fathers God put in my life. And I was going to talk about them today. And instead, I've talked about this. But you know what? It, it's, it's Father's Day. We need to honor him and submit to him today and receive correction. Glory to God. I want you just to pray with me right there where you're at. We're not going to gather around front. might freak somebody out. <laughs> but it's not necessary. Hallelujah. Father, we submit ourselves to you today. We submit to correction. We receive chastening. And we take responsibility. We repent. And I say we, because I'm including myself. We repent for our lack of prayer. Our lack of earnest, diligent, heartfelt, ongoing, consistent prayer until we pray your revival in. We've not done that. We've opened the door for a lot of things and you've allowed these things to happen, Lord, to get the church's attention and largely the church is still not paying attention. More than anything else, most Christians are still blaming everything and everybody but themselves for all that's going on. Father, we repent. We ask you to forgive us, Lord. Glory to God. Forgive us, Father, for for casualness in our approach to the things of God. Casualness in our approach to serving you. We spend more time, time playing games and watching movies and doing other natural things, entertaining ourselves far, far more than we pray or sit at your feet. Father, forgive us for that. Help us, Lord, to put our priorities back where they need to be. Help us. We'll need help. We'll need help. We know that you are our helper. You will help us, Father. We trust you. Glory to God. Father, help us to return to a place of seriousness. Yes, full of joy, full of the joy of the Lord, enjoying life, all of that but a seriousness about our fellowship with you and with one another a seriousness seriousness about the plan of God for these last days We're, we're, we're not just living Father we know we're not just living in any old day we're living in the in the last days and too often we just go about our way, go about our, our, our day, and, and there's, no, there's no real urgency. The hour that we're living in 
is not even on our minds. Father, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to live every day conscious of where we are in time and what your perfect, perfect will. There's a good, there's a permissive will, but then there's a perfect will that you have for each one of our lives. Father, we pray, Lord, that we'll move into your perfect will, out of your permissive will. So often you just allow us to do things. And you bless us as much as you can, but you can't really bless us like you'd like to. And the full measure of, our, of the covenant and the rights that we know belong to us, the full measure of that seems to elude. This shouldn't be, Father. These things shouldn't be a struggle. The, str- the struggle should be with the, with the flesh. should be no struggle in receiving our blessing from you. But we cut ourselves off a lot of times. Judge ourselves unworthy by these things that we do or don't do, that we know we should do. Father, we repent. We ask you to forgive us and help us, Father, to live lives like the Apostle Paul said, seriousness, with seriousness. Living our lives with a, with a sense of urgency, redeeming the time, conscious of the hour in which we live. Glory to God. We thank you, Lord, for helping us today. In Jesus' name, praise God. Mana itza sero romonde rapa ast. Rapa ast. Rapa ast. U rapa asto. Remenenisti rabala corredendo. Shiblanda. Hagele gestia coriandela manso. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. My heart is for the church, my beloved ones, the ones whom I have personally purchased with my very own blood. I reach out in love and kindness for even as the Father whom he loves, he corrects. And even I correct, says the Lord, those whom I love. So respond to me. Respond to this love. Because my heart is for you. To see you walk in all. Walk in all. All that, you, that, that is available. That has been made available. Thank you Lord. Walk in the fullness of it. So go out. 
and stir yourselves up. Don't expect me to stir you up. Stir yourselves up, says the Lord. Stir yourself up and lay hold of all of the life that is yours. Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.